that was cool. And in fact, at the end of Lincoln's life, they found all these drawers full of unsent letters. And there's just like so much wisdom in that, right? You just have to get something off your chest. So you put it down, but you never send it because you know maybe it's not the wisest thing. Sometimes when I read the book of Galatians, I kind of wonder if Paul meant to leave this in his drawer, all right? Because he says some stuff in here that you're just like, wow, man, I can't believe you said that. And, and, and keep this in mind, guys. Not only did he say those things in the letter, it's in the Bible. I mean, it is part of the Bible that he says these things, okay? And here's what I'm talking about. If you go to chapter 1, in the beginning of most of Paul's letters, he takes the time to say something like, I praise God for this about you, or this is really awesome about you, or I'm so moved by your love. And the first really the first thing that he says to these Galatians is, I'm so astonished because you are deserting God and the gospel. Wow. In chapter 2, he recounts the story of him confronting the Apostle Peter to his face. He called out Peter to his face in front of all of these uh, other leaders, all these other you know, uh, Christian followers. You know, to his face, he confronted him about something that he did. And not only did Paul do that, he actually wrote about it here in the Bible to be preserved in our memories forever, Peter's mistake. In chapter 3, look at the first words of chapter 3. He says, you foolish Galatians. Right? He calls them fools right to their face. Right? It is who has bewitched you. In chapter 4, he says, I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. That's harsh. And really, the, the, the last one takes the cake. In chapter 5, he's talking about these, these guys going around saying that you have to get circumcised like us. Okay? Like we're circumcised and you got to get circumcised too. And you know what Paul says about them? He says, yeah, they're so proud of their circumcision, I wish they would have gone all the way with it. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm not going to explain it to you over here on Sunday. <laughs> and you think, what got Paul so worked up that not only would he write these things in a letter, but that, he would, that they would become part of our scriptures as Christians? Well, I think what, what got him so exercised is exactly what he's talking about in that, in that first statement. Right, go back to chapter 1, verse 6. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you in a confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. What Paul is talking about there is that these Galatians, okay, they were Christians, right? But they were Christians who were... Um, who are Gentiles, okay? And you guys know what Gentiles are. They're people who are not Jewish. And remember that Jew Jesus was a Jewish Messiah. He spoke to Jews. He came in fulfillment of the Jewish hope and the Jewish faith. And, and when, um, when, when Paul's writing to these Galatians, these guys were not Jews. They were Gentiles who had become Christians, right? And most likely they were what, what are called God-fearers, which are Gentiles who you know, were either converts to or, or attracted to the Jewish religion. And what had happened is that Paul, who was the apostle to the Gentiles, you know, had gone around to all these different towns of Gentiles saying, hey guys, look, I'm a Jew, and Jew Jewish people are this like other place, but something happened. You know, the Jewish God <laughs> fulfilled his promises to the Jewish people. And it turns out it's not just for us, it's for everybody. And I want to share that gospel to you. And these people in all parts of the Gentile world had become Christians. Right, and 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 so 
they had now followed this Jewish Messiah, but people were starting to go around and to say to them, you know, to comment to them, hey, 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 you guys are Christians? That means you follow the Jewish Messiah. If you follow the Jewish Messiah, you should be following the Jewish laws, right? Which means that you should be following these rituals and doing these sacrifices and following this calendar. Oh, and by the way, I notice you're not circumcised, which I don't know how you notice that. <laughs> but I notice you're not circumcised. Uh, we Jews get circumcised, and you really need to work on that, right? Now imagine you converted to this faith, right? And becoming a Christian meant that you probably were identifying with this unpopular belief, all right? And you had decided to commit your life to, to following this Jesus who loved you as you are and who had good news and redemption for you. And now somebody comes along and says, but you know what? You're not done yet. You have to go there. Right? You have to get circumcised because that's what a, a good Jew does. Okay. And the thing about the thing about this is that is that um, it was hard to hear, but it was catching on. In fact, Paul says um, later on in the chapter, he says some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. And we did not give in to them for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved to you. But what had happened was that people had started to listen and to wonder and to feel this like anxiety of, oh no, are we not really Christians because we're not following the Jewish law? Okay. Now that's back then. And we read about that, well that's very interesting. But the question for us is, how might this be playing out in our context, in our church, for us? Right? That, that, that Paul was concerned that, that the Galatian Christians had started to get sucked into this other gospel. You know, and that sounds scary. That's something that we don't want to happen to us, to get sucked into another gospel. And how could that be among us? Well, I want you guys to imagine something here. Uh, it's not it won't be hard to imagine because it's actually very true. Imagine that we become a close-knit community, right? Real tight. And as a close-knit community, we are committed to following God and to loving God and to obeying Him and being accountable to Him, living His life. And what that means is that we form certain ways of living, that we believe are in, our, are in obedience to God. Like we really learn how important it is to love each other. So when somebody walks in the door, we look at each other in the eye and we smile and we say, welcome brother, it's good to see you. We learn to be polite. We learn to take care of each other's children. We learn that you, know, you don't yell at other people's kids. You, you talk nicely to other people's kids, right? And you take care of them. Right, and, and you you um you don't smoke and you don't drink and you make sure you work hard in your education and your school and you you make sure to to pay for things and don't make somebody else buy you your meal, right? And and you know these things they're they're cultural things, but they're also signs to us of being loving and 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 being a community and being obedient to God. Okay, and we're, we're all happy here in this family in this community. But then let's say. A group of people walk through our door who are different. They, uh, they, uh, they don't think about politeness in terms of shaking somebody's hand and looking them in the eye. They have other ways of expressing politeness. And their daddy smoked and their granddaddy smoked and their great-granddaddy smoked and it's not such a big deal to them. And really, school is not the most important thing in the world to them. There's, they know there's other things more important, like family and, and enjoying life, right? And, uh, and sometimes maybe they use some words that might make us give us pause here at church, although all of us use them when we're driving, <laughs> if we're honest, right? And, you know, and we, we have a, a really hard time with them. And we don't really know if we can hang with them. 
You know, like we don't really feel all that comfortable calling them our brother or our sister, inviting them to our house, having them part of our, our fellowship and our community. And what happens is that we start making other things a litmus test of whether or not these people love God, whether or not they're in the faith, whether or not they have accepted the gospel. Paul kind of talks to this. In chapter 2, he describes a story. He says, look, you guys, you guys are, are, are distorting this gospel thing. And, and you can't get it wrong. You've got to get it right. And when he tells them how to get it right, he tells them stories about his own life. And he says, you know, I was this apostle to the Gentiles. It's kind of funny if you think about it. There was 12 apostles, and they were the apostles to the Jews. And then Paul, this one guy, was the apostle to the Gentiles. Like It was like, the small country, 12 apostles, the rest of the world, Paul. You know, So Paul was going around all these towns, right, starting all these churches. And before he did that, he had checked in with all of those, you know, those luminaries, those, those disciples who walked with Jesus. He said, hey guys, I got, you know, God really spoke to me and, and I used to persecute you guys, but, but now I think he's called me to share the gospel to these Gentiles and I just want to check with you guys. This is my message. Is it cool? And they were like, that's awesome. Go with it, brother. And he's going around all these places making these Gentile churches of followers to Jesus. And then all this stuff is going on where, where all these, this word is, is spreading and there's all this tension between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. And Peter, you guys remember Peter, right? Been around church. Peter is like, you know, one of Jesus' close guys. He's basically like the apostle to the Jews. He's like the head, right? He's like the, the most respected figure in the church. And Peter comes to visit these Gentile churches where Paul's preaching. And it's awesome. I mean, Peter, like the head honcho guy who walked next to Jesus, is sitting down and eating lunch with all these Gentiles, which he used to not be allowed to do. But, you know, Peter had like a dream, and God spoke to him in a vision, and, and he said, you know, don't be afraid to go with these Gentiles. I want to show them my love. I want to show them my gospel. So Peter's hanging with all these Gentiles, and they're all cool, and they're eating together. But, but then in chapter 2 of Galatians here, Paul describes this story that... He would eat with the Gentiles, but then one day, James, who's the head of the church in Jerusalem, right, the like most Jewish of Jewish Christians, right, and, and a whole bunch of leaders from the Jerusalem church, they came to Antioch, to this Gentile church, and when they came to Antioch, Peter got a little nervous. He got a little bit like, ooh, I don't know if I, I, don't know if I feel comfortable. I mean, I'm cool with these Gentile guys, but, but you know, these Jewish guys are here, and they might look at me kind of funny. And, right? These are all Christians, right? These are not bad guys. But he starts to kind of drift a little bit. And it's lunchtime. He's trying to make the decision who to sit with. And he goes and sits only with all those exclusive Jewish leaders, visitors of the church. Okay? And not only does Peter do that, but other leaders are influenced. Barnabas, the guy who first took Paul on mission trips to Gentile cities, also gets influenced. And he starts sitting only with the Jewish Christians. Because, you know, they've got to preserve their Jewish thing. And Paul looks at that. And he's just imagine him sitting there at the lunch table at the Antioch church. And here's his Gentile guys that he's told them, God loves you so much and, and, and this Jewish God has revealed himself in a, in, in a Messiah who cares for you. And they're sitting here eating by themselves. And these big wigs from the head of the church from Jerusalem all sitting here together and Peter sits with them. And remember, Paul is the most Jewish of Jews, right? I mean, when Paul talks about himself being Jewish, he's like, I'm top to bottom Jewish. Okay? But he sees these guys separating, and it says he, he confronted Peter to his face. And in fact, he uses the word that Peter stood condemned. I mean, this is intense. And he went up to Peter's face, and he says, how can you do this? 
How can you do this? How can you reject these guys like this? And I think this is such a crazy phrase. Paul says that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. And, you know, I read some Bible commentaries, you know, and there was one Bible commentary that said, Paul seems to accuse Peter of, of a sort of heresy, but there does not seem to be an actual heresy of belief involved. But some kind, you know. And I'm just like, man, you, you don't get it. See, the, what, what Peter had done was fundamentally opposed to the gospel. You know, I, this is totally conjectural. I'm making stuff up. I, I probably make up a lot of stuff, but I'm, I'm totally guessing here. But you guys, look in chapter 2, and the subheading that where Paul describes the story says, Paul opposes Cephas. You know, Peter um, has two names in the Bible. He has like a million names. He's Simon Peter. He's Peter, right? But he also has other name Cephas. And in this letter, Paul uses both names. He uses Peter and Cephas. But what he says here is, is when Cephas came to Antioch, I confronted him and I said, yo, Cephas, what are you doing? Okay? And I keep wondering, why does he keep using the name Cephas when he's talking about this incident? Well, the reason why is because do you know who gave Peter the name Cephas? Cephas is the same word as Peter. Peter is Greek for stone or rock. And Cephas is Aramaic for stone or rock. And do you know who spoke Aramaic? Jesus. Remember? Jesus gave him the nickname Cephas. He said, you are Cephas. And you know, on this rock, I'll build my church. And I think, I think that Peter, I mean, that Paul uses Cephas here because he wants to remind Peter and remind everybody, hey, this is the guy who, who, who spent three years following every step of Jesus as he ate with sinners, as he went to stay at Zacchaeus' house, as he hung out with prostitutes and people who were outcasts and people who were sick and leprous. That is who we worship. And so how can you now decide that you are too good for these people? Not in line with the truth of the gospel. And so Peter was like, busted. <laughs> and you can understand what Paul is so passionate about here, why it's such a big deal. It's not just because he doesn't want guys to get circumcised, right? It's because there's something going on in the division of this church and the way that some people are judging others in the church that is a perversion of the gospel. So, what is this gospel? I had a PowerPoint, and it didn't uh, transfer, so I'm sorry. But <laughs> what I want to present to you this morning is, in the book of Galatians, four contrasts that Paul gives, four facts about what the gospel is, okay? Not a story, just four truths that Paul gives about what the gospel is, okay, that are crucial for us to understand, and that you can see and understand why Paul is so passionate about this gospel. The first one, look in uh, chapter 3, verses 13 to 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung in a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith, by faith, we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Contrast number one. Faith over works of the law. Okay? When I was in junior high, I started going to church as a, as a teenager. I didn't grow up in a church. My parents aren't Christians. I became a Christian... And somebody told me to read the Bible. So I went home and I started reading it. And I'm going to tell you guys, I had a panic. Okay? Because I started reading it, and it was all this stuff that it told us that we were supposed to do, and I wasn't doing. And I didn't know how to do it. Right? I mean, there was all this stuff. I mean, this is like Old Testament, like uh, Kevin was talking about Leviticus. And I was like reading this Leviticus. Like, am, I supposed to, am I supposed to kill a dove or something? And then, you know, I was like, even the Jesus stuff. That was like, you know, like, um, you know, um, 
you know, don't curse somebody. Oh, yeah, man, I'm really in trouble. And so I went to church, and I had just been going for a few weeks, and I went up to Uncle Gene, who was a, a Bible study leader. This old guy was a, you know, like a former alcoholic who Jesus had turned his life around. And I went up to Gene, and I said, Gene, I'm really scared because I, I, I bought into this Christian thing. I became a Christian, and I, I don't do anything. I don't even know how to do them. And you know what he said to me? He said, Paul, you, when you became a Christian, you started a relationship with God, the same God who wrote all these things down. Don't, don't be afraid. That same God, he'll tell you what to do with this stuff. Just keep growing in your relationship with him. Keep loving him and, and keep letting him love you. And, and you'll figure this stuff out. It was like, I'm, that was so pivotal for my Christian faith. It was awesome. He basically was telling me, you know what? There's a lot here and it's all true and it's all powerful. But, but you don't have to have it all figured out because your, your faith is not a system. It's a person. You didn't put your faith in a bunch of rules or in a bunch of statements of facts. You put your faith in a person, the person of Jesus Christ. You know, it's not that systems are bad, right? The, the law was a system that God gave. And this is the two, venerable two volumes of the Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin in the 1600s. The development of the system of faith. I love this volume. I think it's very, very important. It's very, very good. And it, it, it was very, very powerful for its time. But that is not our faith. Because that one, and there was another one, this guy wrote, and then another one, this guy wrote. And there's like hundreds of these systematic theologies. And it's like, how many systems do we have to write? Well, you have to keep writing them every hundred years or so because times change. But the person is the same. And we, we can't ever forget as Christians that that it's a, it's a person who we are pursuing, and we can't put God in a box in our systems, right? Uh, you know Bono? He's the lead singer of U2. He wrote this song, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. Do you guys know that song? But I still haven't found what I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> it's a great song. Uh, and, you know, there's even a line in that song toward the end where he says, I believe in the kingdom come, all the colors will bleed into one, you know, uh, talk about, um, you know, Christ dying for him, and I, you know I believe it. And then, but the chorus is, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And somebody went up to Bono, one of his friends, and like, dude, you know, you're a Christian, and you had this faith experience. Why would you write a song called, I still haven't found what I'm looking for? Haven't you found what you're looking for? And you know what he said? He said, when I met Jesus, I didn't get all my questions answered. In fact, it just raised all kinds of new questions for me. And I think that's such a, 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 an amazing truth that faith without doubt is dead. That if your faith is a system of certainties that you have chronicled in your head and you're sure that you know it all, it's dead. If your faith is in a dynamic and living and vibrant one, a person who always has new things for you, who is always, uh, for you, uh, taking all the things that were true and traditional and exploding them in fresh ways in your life, who is always speaking in new, new, new ways. That's awesome. And that's the faith that we have. Okay? So contrast one, faith over works of the law. Our gospel is a gospel of faith. Secondly, second contrast, freedom over slavery. Our gospel is a gospel of freedom. In chapter 5, verse 1 of Galatians, it says that Christ set us free for freedom. Okay, some of you guys are flipping. That's really good. I want you guys to kind of track with me as we go through this. 
Okay? And stand firm them and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Okay? And, you know, in previous um, verses, he talks about that, that we're reborn in the power of the Spirit. Okay? And if, and if you are, are stuck in, in a certain slave mentality, you keep going back to your old master, not realizing that you've been set free. A great illustration of this that, that, uh, <laughs> like a really funny story is that during World War II, there was a Japanese soldier, his name was Hiru Onoda, okay? And this guy was trained for guer- jungle guerrilla warfare. And they sent him to the jungles of the Philippines toward the end of World War II, and they had trained him for, like, tactical jungle warfare, right? So he was ready for the orders to come down for him to, you know, go into whatever in the Philippines and, and conduct the attack, right? And so he was there in the jungle, and the war ended. And he didn't know it. Nobody told him, okay? And so they sent this search party after him to like, hey man, the work's over, you can come home, okay? But he was so good at his jungle thing that he thought that these search parties were, you know, like scouting the grid to get whatever troops from the other side, and so he would evade them and eat coconuts and all that. And he lived in the jungle not knowing that the war had ended for 29 years. <laughs> it wasn't until 1932 that this guy got out of the jungle and was like, hey, what happened to the war? You know, I've been waiting for orders. And meanwhile, Japan has like already gone through with like all these crazy changes, right? And, and I feel like we're like that sometimes. We are so used to jungle warfare that we don't realize that the war has already ended. We're so used to, to, to the mentality that we have to feed our own addictions and, our, and we have to get our pleasures and our gratification from approval from the world or from, from, from this or that or from our material things that we don't realize that Christ has set us free from those things. We don't have to be mastered by those things anymore. He set us free to a kind of life of peace and joy that that, that is opposite of the slavery to those things. And Paul talks about this freedom that you now live in. Right? That's gospel. Contra- contrast number three is adoption as children over servitude. Okay? If you look in chapter 4, verses 4 to 7, Paul talks about how when the set time had come, God sent a son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of the son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. Okay? Now some of us think that as Christians, we still have to have this servant attitude. That, that, okay, this is, what, this is the difference. When you're a servant, when you work for somebody, you're always worried about how they think about you. Okay? You know, you go to work, and hopefully they're happy with you. And if they're not happy with you, you get fired, and you got to find another job. And if they are happy with you, hopefully you move up the ranks, and you please those people above you. Okay? In contrast, think about what it means to be a son or a daughter, assuming a fairly good parent. Okay? When I go home to my dad, you know, I comment about, how, how weird the house smells, or <laughs> you know, like, I, I'm not a great son all the time. But I know my dad loves me, and I know my dad has worked hard his whole life to make a lot of money to pass on to us. And he talks about it all the time. I can't even use all this money. I'm just gonna. This is all going to your daughter, you know. The difference between being a servant and being a son or a daughter is that you know that the other person that that they love you unconditionally. Um, I have a friend named Pat. She was also, I'm sorry, a friend named Carol. She was also a teacher. 
she taught um, English like I did to um, immigrant students. And she had a student named Enrique. Uh, Enrique from Mexico, his family was um, a big family, and he was on the younger side, and, and they just had a lot of problems and stuff like that. And Enrique was just like the coolest, sweetest kid. Like the, this, he just came to class every day, like eager to learn. He'd tell the other kids, hey, shut up, this young love is talking, right? Like one of those kids, you know? And he still ran with like some kids who got into trouble, and sometimes he got into trouble. But, 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 um, do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, Carol is just awesome. Because he saw, Enrique, she saw Enrique and she was just like, you know, Enrique, you, you need, uh, you need some new clothes, you know? I'm gonna get you some new clothes, you know? Or Enrique would be like, ah, I don't have lunch money. And she'd give him lunch money. And, and eventually things got so rough in his house that, that, that she was like, hey, do you want to stay with us? Me and my partner Pat. And so Enrique stayed with Carol and, you know, kind of made a house for him. And I think when Enrique was around 15 or 16 or 17 or something like that, um, Carol and Pat, asked Enrique if, you know, it's kind of weird, he has a family or whatever, but how he would feel if they legally adopted him, right? And he was like, that would be awesome. That'd be great. And so they adopted him, and now he's legally their son. And I remember, I, was, I didn't ask her, but I was sitting in the lunchroom, and she was having a conversation with somebody, and, and they were like, Carol, um, you know, I mean, he's, he's almost 18, right? He's almost going to live on his own. You're already taking care of him. Why did you have to legally adopt him? And she said, well, there's all kinds of legal reasons, but it's also so he knows that, you know, he never has to earn his way to our, our table, to our home. He belongs here, you know. It's, he doesn't, he doesn't have to worry that if he makes a mistake, we're not going to welcome him back. That's adoption. That's being a son or daughter. I mean, now think about that in your relationship with God. You don't have to worry that he doesn't approve of you. You don't have to worry that he's sitting there counting all the things that you're doing wrong and giving you a performance assessment and saying that if you do one more, then we're going to have to lay you off. We're going to have to let you go. Right? You are a son. You are a daughter. Unconditionally. Right? And he has an inheritance for you. That's profound. The last contrast that Paul talks about is the spirit over the flesh. Chapter 5, verses 24 to 25. He says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Uh, and by sinful nature, he refers to the flesh above. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And what Paul's t- uh, talking about here is that he's talking about that when Christ was crucified in the flesh, that we too are crucified with him if he is our Lord. And now, we don't need to trust in our flesh and ourselves, but, but God's Spirit who lives in us to bear the fruit of God's life, God's kind of life in us, to give us peace and patience and kindness and goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Right? And I think that this is so powerful because... Um, well, okay. I'm talking to a room full of very competent and capable people. Yeah? Sometimes I look at our church and I go, wow, if we pooled all of our, our resources together, how much we could do, you know? I mean, we got like some very learned people in here. We got engineers, we got salespeople, we got teachers and educators and people who know how to fix cars, and all kinds of people in here. And I think, wow, I start dreaming like, wow, our church could do so much. And then I think about Jesus and 12 dudes who were like, fishermen, tax collectors, and how they changed the world, 
the power of the Spirit. And then I look at us and I go, ah, oh, big deal. <laughs> you know? and, and, and I remember that God can do so much more than we can. And that's good news. I mean, at first I'm kind of like, oh, that's, I have all these talents. I guess they don't mean anything. You know? But then I think that's awesome because I actually I have talents, but I have so many shortcomings and there's so little I can do. But it's not about what I can do. It's about what, what God's Spirit can do through me. And that's what the Gospel is. It's not about what we can do when we trust in our flesh. It's what God's Spirit can do in us. And so Paul presents these different contrasts by way of telling the gospel, right? And you can see that this gospel is just this incredible gift of God's relational love for us to trust in, of a freedom that we can embrace that comes in Christ, right? Of being sons and daughters of him, of being able to walk in the spirit instead of having to rely on this weak, weak flesh that we have. And that's why Paul is so passionate about making sure that they trust in this true gospel and that they don't, that they haven't believed in a false, in a false one, in a distorted one. That's about following the rules of some system of belief. Okay, what does this mean, Paul? How do we apply this for us? All right, the applications are all over the word. Okay, if we have received this gospel, if this is our Lord, if Christ is, um who we center our lives around, then this is what you do. Go to chapter 6, verse 2. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Chapter 4. Each of you should test his own actions. Then you can take pride in yourself without comparing yourself to someone else, for each of you should carry your own load. Those two verses almost seem to contradict each other. He says, carry each other's burdens. He also says, carry your own load. Carry your own burdens. Take responsibility for yourself. Right? I think what he means to say is that all of us have to live accountable to God. All of us have to take care of ourselves. But just because we're taking care of ourselves doesn't mean that we can look at somebody else who's struggling and say, hey, what's wrong with you? Right? Instead, when we see somebody burdened, when we see somebody have a hard, hard time, something going on in someone's life, we carry each other's burdens. Right? Because that's exactly what Christ did. He walked a sinless life, but he saw that we were sinners. And he took that burden for us on the cross, right? Look at verse uh, uh, 11. In 6.11 he says, See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Okay? So another way that we apply this is we need to write with large letters. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> what are they talking about there? Do you guys know why Paul had to write uh, with, uh, with large letters? Because he's old, right? He's getting old, okay? He's had a long life, and he's been through a lot of stuff, and his body's breaking down, and he can't barely see. In fact, most of Paul's letters, um, scholars think, were you know, written through what's called an amanuensis. He dictated them, somebody sat there and wrote them, okay? But this letter to the Galatians, you remember, he just feels this passionate urge to speak to them. And so he writes this, and he could have had someone else write it, but he sits there with his, like, like barely <laughs> working eyes, and he's got a pen. He's just imagining scribbling, like oh, it's feeling dangerous, you know, <laughs> like passionately writing a thing, right? And he's like, man, you you really care about this a lot. And and earlier in the book, he had said that you know when I came to you, Galatians, I came and lived just like you. I dropped all my old ways of living, and I came to live like you. Why? Because in another place, he says, because I went through the the pains of childbirth for Christ to be born in you. Okay? 
Now, first of all, no man has a right to talk about whether it pays a childbirth, okay? We don't really know what that really is like, right? But I think Paul must have known. I think people at that time saw a lot more childbirth than we get to, even though they didn't have TV. So <laughs> Paul, Paul, like, describes his relationship to these Galatians. He didn't just show up as some Jewish teacher being all like, I'm a Jew and we have the truth and let me tell it to you and you follow me and you live the way that I tell you to live and that's take it or leave it. He came and he adopted their way of life. He, he learned about how they spoke to each other. He learned what mattered to them. He lived among them. He, he, he lived ungenerously among them. As Christ would if Christ lived among them. He sat and he ate with them. He, he struggled with the struggles they struggled with. He, he saw the burdens that they, that they had and he tried to carry it for them. Right? He's the guy, Paul was the guy among these Gentiles who, if you were like, oh man, my house fell apart. He'd be like, it's all good. Showed up the next day with tools and, and materials, and he, he'd help you put your house back together for you. And you say, why would you do this? You're not even one of us. He said, because that's what Christ would do if he were here. And he says, that's how I lived among you. Okay? And so now do you see why he's so passionate? Because that same verse, he said, he said my dear children for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth, until Christ is formed with you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I'm perplexed about you. He said, how, how is it that I came to you with a gospel that was about a Christ who gave himself for us and therefore we give ourselves to others and now you're sitting here judging each other. You're circumcised, you're not. You're in, you're out. How could that be? He says, what kind of perversion of the gospel is this? In chapter 5, verse 6, he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. What I want to say is that as a church, the question for us of whether the gospel is at the center of who we are is answered by the question of whether Jesus Christ and his spirit is visible here. Whether we're able to embrace the newcomer to welcome the different, to love people who we would not have a natural affinity with, and to shed what's not important to God and to learn to see what is important to Him and the people who come among us and the people that we live with. Uh, this is a hard story for me to tell, but <clears throat> about a year and a half ago, or a year and a couple months ago, Dean and Emily came aboard to our church, yeah, as, as, pastor, as pastors. And a couple weeks into coming here, you know, we told them a lot about our community and stuff like that. And a couple weeks into coming here, Dean wrote me an email and said, Brother, I something hard I want to say to you. I feel like I have to say to you. And he was really loving about it. He's smiling now, but he really was. He was very loving about it. <laughs> I asked him if I could tell the story. Don't worry. And, and then we had a talk, and it was over the phone. And he said, you know, it's been great. You've taken really good care of me. And, and uh, we're having a pretty good time here. But to be honest, I just don't feel like this church is very... Well, to be honest, welcoming. I mean, people are nice, but just don't feel like they're very welcoming. And I was like, man, that's terrible for me to hear. Because that's all we have to talk about is welcoming people, you know? We have to talk about how important it is to love people. And I, I just didn't understand why. And I, and I asked him, and, and, and he, was, he was very open about it. He shared with me. You know, one of the things that happened is that in one of the first weeks that he and Emily were here, I mean, they got two kids, young kids that they got to take care of, right? It's hard to take care of these kids. And you know, remember, we used to go out to lunch every week together, right? And we stopped doing that for certain reasons. And what happened is that we put on this PowerPoint, we're going to lunch at a certain place. So Dean and Emily, eager to come here to serve in this church and to, to just love us and to take care of us, 
really wanted to get to know us, couldn't wait for lunchtime, you know, to kind of start fitting in, you know. And so they saw the thing on the PowerPoint, and then they went to whatever restaurant it was for lunch. And meanwhile, some of us here were thinking, oh, we're tired of that place. <laughs> let's go somewhere else to eat. And so we were kind of like chattering, and like, oh, let's go here, okay. And, then, and we went there to eat. And, and to be honest, okay, I was a little upset. I was kind of like, hey, 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 we can't just change course. You know, like, we told people we're going to eat there. And I already knew. And Dean had told me, right, that they were leaving. And I knew they were going to lunch there. And, and things got busy. And we eat and to go take care of and all this kind of stuff. And so we had gone to lunch um, at this other place. And we're all sitting there eating, okay? And, and it's nobody's, nobody else's fault. I mean, they were just kind of going with their, you know, like, where they wanted to eat and where it was more comfortable and it, it would be better accommodation, all this kind of stuff. It's my fault. I really should have told Dean, hang on for a second. Sometimes people change my mind. I should have called him right away. Instead, I called him later. But what ended up happening is that all of us were eating lunch in one place and Dean and his family had taken all this effort to bring the kids and set them up and started ordering food and then they got a phone call. Oh, we're not there, right? And nobody had told us that we were going somewhere else. Right? And understandably, their family was just eating there by themselves. Is anyone in the church ever going to want to talk to us or care about us or whatever? And that really bothered me. I mean, I went home that day really bothered. And so when I was talking to Dean later on, he was saying this, I was like, oh yeah, dude, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry about that. And okay, small mistake, right? Communication problem, right? No, no big deal. I mean, they're fine now. I mean, you guys are okay, right? <laughs> okay. But it just killed me. It killed me. And I couldn't figure out why. And I was like, Taylor, I'm so mad at some people, really. I had no reason to be mad. I'm so mad at you know these people who wanted to eat somewhere else. So How dare you want to eat a, a, a taco when it was doing me say? I was like, why does this bother me so much? And then I reflected on it. And this is why. This is why. Because we can't even welcome the new pastor who's coming to serve us. What happens if someone comes in here? Who's different from us? Who eats like, and we all eat like this, you know? Like, how, how can we be that as a community? Right? It wasn't just that it was rude. To me, it was antithetical to the gospel. Uh, I don't mean, I don't mean to say, to, I don't mean that to say that we should feel bad about eating lunch somewhere else. What, what I mean is that, as a community, like every one of us, we got to really think about if Christ has embraced and welcomed us, it's going to be uncomfortable for us sometimes to embrace and welcome others. But if we've been loved this way by God, if as strange as we were, he took us in, what kind of community should we be? Um, Denise is joining our staff team. And one of the things that she's, and we'll talk about that next week a little bit more, but Denise, one of the things that she um, uh, is working on is a welcoming team. And the welcoming team is really uh, for some of us to work on making the Sunday worship a more welcoming place. Right? So that when folks come in here, if they have kids, they know where to send their kids. If they don't know anybody, then somebody shows them to a seat, and they hear about what our church is. And, and to be honest, sometimes as a church, we're not a very welcoming place. Okay, if you come here at 10.59, some of you, first of all, it'll be a miracle. <laughs> Just kidding, sorry. <laughs> if you come here at 10.59, sometimes the only people that are here are the people on stage and, a new, and the new people. And they come in here to this church and there's nobody in here. Nobody says anything to them. Nobody welcomes them. It's, it's just weird. 
you know? And then gradually we drift in here. And look, I know why we're late, okay? I'm late too, right? The only difference is that I'm supposed to be here at, you know, 9.30 and I'm actually here at 10.40, right? I'm late too. I understand, okay? So I'm not trying to keep, keep anything on anybody. But what I'm saying is, I think we gotta think consciously as a community, not just why is it important for me to be here on time or whatever, or what kind, am I friendly here at church, but, but, but as a, as a gospel change community, how do we welcome the outsider? How do we welcome somebody who comes in our midst? And then it matters who we eat lunch with, to be honest, okay? It matters who we're willing to hang out with. It matters who we're willing to call up on the phone and say, hey, you want to do something with me, right? Church, we got to do that. So that was my plug for Janice's welcoming team. So <laughs> she's going to talk about it soon. But I just want to end this sermon, actually, um, not on a condemning note, and I'm sorry if I sounded that way, but really on a, on a appreciative note, because... Um, what I'm talking about here, of Paul's doing, his passion for a way of living and acting comes from the gospel that he has found as truth. That is the truth of the gospel. That is the truth of Jesus Christ. And there are certain people in our church, like all of us in small ways, in big ways, do it. But there are certain people in our church who have also, like Paul, really gone out of their own way to, to go the second mile. And it's the time of the year when we um, ask for people to lead and to take responsibility for aspects of the church, but it's also a time when we really need to appreciate those who have. And so I want to, I, they, I didn't prep them for this, they didn't know I was doing this, but I want to ask a few people to come up here for us to appreciate them and to pray for them. Uh, so, and, and I just want to preface this by saying that um, in many ways, these are folks in our church who have, like Paul, um, you know, put aside their own like comfort and their own things got to be my way and loved us and cared for us and served us. And I just want to thank those people right now. Okay. And so, uh, Dean, will you come up here and do this with me? We just want to pray for these people and appreciate these people. Um, first of all, um, our youth ministry, uh, you know, those of you guys who are in junior high and high school, you guys are all really, really cool. But for us old people, it's hard sometimes to hang with you guys. I mean, you know, when I, I wasn't, I'm not that old, but I just feel old. When you, guys, you guys are always talking about like movies. I don't even know, like Korean dramas. I, why do you people watch Korean dramas? I, I just don't get it, you know? Like, I don't understand the music. But our youth leaders just really go out of their way to um, take care of these guys and to learn about their lives and to, and to, to be there with them. So Katie and Sheen, Will you guys come up here? And let's like, really appreciate sitting in the Okay. Uh, if, if I did a good job, we'd have a gift for you, but... Um, just, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Jesus, high five. <laughs> um, Katie and Sheen take care of our youth group every week. They come here on Friday night. They um, organize things. They plan Bible studies. They get to know kids. They um, invite them over to their house. Um, to teach them how to cook. Um, they're just incredible, and I really, really appreciate them. And actually, um, Angela and Ben and Edmund, uh, Edmund's not here right now, right? But Angela and Ben, uh, you guys can just stand up. How about that? Angela and Ben also help out a lot. Let's really appreciate Angela and Ben, too. Um, Jasmine is also another one of our ODs, but she's not here right now. Um, also want to appreciate Matt. Matt, would you come up here? Okay. 
Uh, Matt is um, the leader of our small group ministries in, at large, and also specifically the leader of Northward, and he also leads worship up here. And I'm going to tell you guys that um, sometimes I come here on Sunday, and I'm the first person from our congregation here, except Matt. A lot of times Matt is here before me, because he's like, practicing on his guitar, or like, you know, like this guy just gives so much heart and soul to our, our, our church and our congregation and to our small group, and, and I really, really appreciate your ministry among us, Matt. You're, you're a huge blessing. Um, I also want to ask Doug if you'll come up here. Let's appreciate Doug. Come on. So in addition to um, teaching our Sunday school class uh, for, for a long time and um, devoting a lot of study and, and preparation to teaching, I just also appreciate that Doug is um, kind of like our all-around reliable um, brother and example. Um, you know, we're going to talk about the Snow Elementary thing in a minute, but... When Dean had to think of, okay, oh shoot, we're going to do something to try to serve the community. Who are we going to call on? Uh, of course, immediately he calls on, on Doug, because that's who you've been in our community. And we thank you for that. Um, and then I think she left, but I was going to call Ruby up here. I, I, oh, there she is. Come on, Ruby. Hey. Right. Now, I don't have to say a lot of, because y'all know, all right? All I have to, all I'm going to say is, four kids! Takes care of the children's ministry. That's incredible. <laughs> That's the big movie. All right. Um, we thank you for just taking care of our children's ministry and organizing volunteers. And every uh, every Sunday when I'm with Eden in the nursery, there's always some like old grandma lady there or somebody there to help out. And Ruby's organized all of them together and encouraged them and uh, just does so much for kids and brings kids to our youth group and all that kind of stuff. And just thank you for being a, an example of a parent for, for all of us. Um, uh, I wanted to thank Kevin, too. Where's, oh, he's right there. Okay. Kevin and Nat lead worship uh, regularly on Sunday. Kevin, will you come up, too? And, uh, and a lot of times doing that, they have to, like, you know, have Davis in one hand and a guitar in the other. <laughs> That's actually impossible. Anyway, um, thank you for your, your leadership. Um, thank all of you guys. There are some of you who serve and you haven't been called up here. Don't worry, we're just saving you for Dean for next week, okay? It's not that we forgot about you, but uh, we certainly don't want to forget about you. Thank you for all you've done this past year and actually, and obviously going long back after that. And we really want to appreciate you. So we're going to ask Dean to pray. Would you guys stand so that we can pray a blessing together uh, for these folks? Okay, Dean, will you pray for them? The church, let's pray and bless our leaders. <clears throat> Ephesians 2. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets,